Well, this morning we are returning to our studies in the prophecy of Jonah. And in so doing, we're going to begin our reading in verse 17 of chapter 1. And we're going to continue through verse 10 of chapter 2. And we pick up the story in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is the place of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine for a moment if the prophecy of Jonah were a play that we had never seen. And in this play, the curtain has just come down on a scene sharp with contrast. On a scene where on one side of the stage, you had formerly panicked pagans now praising Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, praising Him because He had just delivered them from a great storm at sea. While on the other side of the stage... You have the prophet of Israel plummeting to the very bottom of the sea. And again, if we didn't know anything about this play, none of us could be blamed for thinking that this was the end, that this was the final curtain. For if the prophet for whom this name is played, is named, is drowned at the sea, drowned because of his own disobedience, then surely the play is over. And so we start to get up from our seats. But then it happens. The curtain begins to rise, and once it's fully up, we're all of a sudden introduced to a new and strange and scary character in the drama, a great fish. For the same God who pursued wayward Jonah by hurling a great wind upon the sea now appoints a great sea creature to swallow him whole. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, much could be said and has been said about this great fish. One commentator's remark, this must be the most criticized fish that ever swam the Mediterranean, leaving us with the hope that a fish can speak in the new creation, that this poor creature will be given an opportunity to answer his critics We obviously have questions when it comes to this great fish. What sort of fish or sea creature was it? 
How could it swallow a man? And if it did swallow a man, how could that man survive in its belly for an extended period of time? And various answers and even stories have been offered to exonerate the historical veracity of this fish. But here's the problem with that approach. This story isn't really about the fish. He, of course, has a role to play, but it's not the main role. No, the main role is reserved for God, the one who appointed the fish and used the fish for his purpose, which is the purpose of reviving and restoring his rebellious prophet. The great wonder of this story isn't the great fish, but the great God, the God who delights in showing his transforming grace to sinners. Now, having said this, given this caveat about the fish, I do want to say something about him. However, what I want to say doesn't fall in the realm of biology. What sort of creature was this? We have no idea. It could have been Godzilla for all we know. Nor does it fall in the realm of believability. Could this have really happened? Well, of course it could have happened. If God, and because God, is the sovereign maker and mover of all things. Appointing a great fish is no harder for him than appointing a tiny worm to do his bidding. Now, what I want to say about this great fish has to do with the overall prophetic message of the Old Testament. Now, what is the prophetic message of the Old Testament? Well, it's the threefold message of accusation, warning, and promise. You see, the prophets were primarily sent to speak God's word to a wayward Israel. And in doing this, they accused Israel of their sin, namely their sin of forgetting and fleeing from their covenant God. And with this accusation came the prophetic warning that Israel would be judged for their persistent sin, judgment that would ultimately come in the form of exile, of them being ripped away from their homeland. Yet with this accusation and warning also came a promise that in exile, in judgment, God would preserve and restore and eventually return his rebellious people to their homeland. Accusation against sin, judgment for sin, and the promise of restoration. That's the overall message of the prophets. And in describing it, the prophets often use metaphors. And one of the metaphors they described and then they used in describing this message, and in particular the message of God's judgment, was that of being swallowed up. For example, we read in Jeremiah 51, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He's swallowed me like a sea monster. He's filled his stomach with my delicacies, and then he spewed me out. Now, who does this judgment on God's people sound like? Sounds like Jonah. And you see, that's what makes the book of Jonah, the prophecy of Jonah, unique. For all the other prophetic books are books primarily filled with words of the prophets. But Jonah is a book filled with words about the prophet. Meaning Jonah's life embodies the overall prophetic message. And as such, it embodies the story of Israel. For like Israel, Jonah forgot and fled from his God. Like Israel, Jonah was judged, not by being swallowed and exiled by the nations, but being swallowed up and carried to the very bottom of the sea by this fish. And yet in the fish, Jonah's revived and restored and eventually returned, 
literally vomited back onto dry land. Jonah's story is Israel's story. A story given to Israel to, in a sense, wake them up to the reality of their rebellion, of how they had forsaken their God and fled from His call to be a light to the nations. It's a story that says that if Israel refuses to wake up spiritually, if they refuse to repent, then they too will be swallowed up in judgment. And yet, marvelously, Jonah is also a story that promises and points to the reality that even in judgment, God remembers mercy, His mercy that brings life out of death. But not only is Jonah a story, the story of Israel, it's also the story of Adam. It's the story of the whole human race. For in the beginning, Adam forgot and fled from his God. And as a result, he and all of humanity fell. And in falling, we were swallowed up by death. Death that alienated us from God, that divided us from one another, and that filled us with guilt and despair. And yet, in that deserved judgment, God remembered mercy. For in His mercy, He promised a Savior. He promised to send one who Himself would be swallowed up by death so as to destroy death. He promised one who'd be judged on our behalf so that His judgment might actually become the very instrument of our renewal, of our salvation, of being restored to God's presence. Jonah, then, is a sign of wayward Israel. He's a sign of perishing humanity. And even more, he's a sign of the Savior to come. Now, when we put all this together, how are we to understand this great fish? Well, first and foremost, we're to understand the fish as a means of judgment. He was appointed to serve as a tomb for the spiritually dead Jonah. Second, we're to understand the fish as a means of preservation. For without the fish, Jonah would have literally died, yet he was preserved, which means the tomb of the fish also served as an ark of safety for Jonah. And then third, we're to understand the fish as a means of restoration. For the tomb of the fish also served as a womb from which Jonah was remade. And this comes out in the fact that the author, strangely, changes the gender of the fish midstream. You see, in verse 17 of chapter 1, as well as verse 10 of chapter 2, the fish is male. But in verse 1 of chapter 2, the fish is all of a sudden a female. Now, why the change in gender? Well, it's not because this fish was a gender-bending fish. Now, what the author is saying is that this male fish, in housing Jonah for three days and three nights, functioned as a mother, where Jonah was revived and reformed, and then rebirthed into the man, into the prophet God desired him to be. Judgment, preservation, and restoration. That's the meaning of this great fish. And the great emphasis of this chapter is on the last of these, restoration. That God in His steadfast love, in His mercy and grace, brought life out of death. That through the waters... Through being swallowed up by this great fish, Jonah was restored to life. Now, seen in this way, Jonah's story is one of many similar stories in the Bible. 
Think of Noah and his family passing through the waters of judgment into a restored creation. Think of baby Moses passing through the waters of the Nile to be saved and eventually become Israel's deliverer. Think of God's people passing through the waters of the Red Sea, going from their enslaved death in Egypt to a new life of freedom in covenant with God. Think ultimately of Jesus passing through the waters of judgment on the cross, judgment that he calls his own baptism, passing through this judgment and into the life of resurrection. And in Christ, think of your own baptism, of how Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that if we were buried with Christ, we were buried into death through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Passing from death to life by God's sovereign and holy mercy. That's the meaning of Jonah and the fish. Because you see, as Jonah went into the waters, thrown overboard, sinking, he was certain that he was entering death. This comes out in verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In the ancient world of the Hebrews, they often talked of death as a shadowy land, Sheol, where once entered, the iron gates were permanently closed behind the person that went in. And as Jonah descended into the sea, this was the place he says he was going. And in going there, he was sure he was a goner. But then it happened. For rather than being entombed forever in the sea, he found himself entombed, alive, in a fish. And in the fish, he found himself confined and surrounded by darkness and silence. In the fish, he received no word from God. And for three days and three nights, he spoke no word to God. Unlike the sailors who cried out quickly and unlike the Ninevites who quickly repent, Jonah was slow to speak to God. And the reason was because God, knowing Jonah, was patiently working on him to change his stony heart, his self-centered heart. And how do we know God changed his heart as he was in the fish? Because eventually he did pray. And it's his prayer that reveals God's grace that brought Jonah from judgment to restoration. It was the great grace of the great God that brought great revival to this prophet. And in Jonah's prayer, we're able to discern the marks of what it looks like when God in his grace takes a castaway a wayward and rebellious sinner, and revives and restores him. And these are marks that we need to know. We we need to know what true restoration and heart revival looks like. And in this prayer, we actually see those marks so that we might be sure that those marks are actually characteristic of our lives. Now, what are the marks? Well, there are five of them. And the first is this, and we see this in Jonah's prayer. Knowing your true danger and owning the reason for it. Again, Jonah knew that he was in danger of physically drowning. He says in verse 7 that his life was fainting away as he sunk in the waters. 
But as terrifying as his physical danger was, it wasn't as terrifying as the spiritual danger Jonah knew he was in, which was the danger of being under God's judgment. Notice how this comes out. When he talks about being thrown into the sea in this prayer, notice he says nothing about the sailors throwing him in. And of course, they did throw him in at his own suggestion. Rather, he says that it was God who threw him into the sea. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And when he was in the seas, it was your waves and your billows that passed over me. Jonah's physical danger was merely a sign of his greater danger, the danger of being under the spiritual judgment of God. But amazingly, the fact that Jonah recognized this scary truth was actually a mark of God's grace, a grace that enabled Jonah to acknowledge it as well as to admit that he deserved it, that he deserved, first, verse 4, to be driven away from God's sight because of his sin. Now, now think again of the flow of this story, what we've heard over the past two weeks. How at the beginning, the very thing Jonah wanted, his heart desire was to be away from God's presence, thinking he could find freedom apart from God. But where did his desire for godless freedom lead him? To the bottom of the sea, in the belly of a sea monster. Jonah wanted to be free from God. And God, in his judgment, gave Jonah not only what he deserved, He gave Jonah what he wanted. He gave Jonah a small but real taste of what it's really like to be away from God's presence, to know His presence not as joy but as judgment, as spiritual alienation, which itself is spiritual death. The, The danger Jonah was in was, of course, a danger of his own making. It was the danger of not wanting God and God giving him what he wanted. But here's the grace of God at work, that once Jonah was given what he wanted, once he tasted of spiritual alienation, he became horrified. He was overwhelmed. He was undone. And in this awful place, he knew he couldn't blame others. He knew he couldn't cover up his sin. He knew he had no excuse for what he had done. And he knew he deserved every ounce of what he was experiencing. And in this prayer, he owns the truth that his sin put him in this place. And the question is, for us, have we too owned the truth of how our sin destroys us and puts us away from God's presence? Have we acknowledged that all we deserve is God's holy judgment for our rebellion against Him? Do we know and own our sin, big or small? And as strange as it might sound, this is actually the first mark of a sinful heart being revived. It's the mark of honest confession and true repentance. What about the second mark? Well, it's remembering God and His Word. 
Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. In his distress, Jonah remembered his covenant-keeping God. And in remembering him, what he remembered most was God's word. The man who began by wanting to get away from God's spoken word now remembers God's written word as he dwelt in the belly of the beast. And how do we know that Jonah remembered God's word? Well, because of the content of his prayer. You see, every word, practically every word of Jonah's prayer is drawn straight from Scripture and specifically the Psalms. In his distress, Jonah remembered and returned to his Bible. It's as if in his distress, the word he had previously heard in worship and the word he had previously spoken in his ministry finally became real to him. And as it did, God's word flowed out of him in prayer. As one who belonged to the covenant community of God, Jonah would have been steeped in the scriptures. And therefore, in his distress, he had a language that enabled him to remember that, yes, God is holy. And yes, God hates sin. But at the same time, God is also merciful. And therefore, he forgives sin. Now, what's the lesson for us? Well, it's this, that we're not only to store up God's word in our hearts that we might not sin against him. But we're also to store up God's word in our hearts so that when we do sin against him, we might have a language that enables us to confess our sins. Language that assures us that God indeed forgives the sinner. In corporate worship, in personal devotion, we're being steeped in God's word. His word that's sufficient not only in the good times, but in the bad times of our suffering, our disappointment, And yes, even our failure. In his distress, Jonah finally remembered God in his word. And in remembering, he finally did what the sea captain was begging him to do. He finally called out to his God by speaking God's word back to him in prayer. Well, then there's the third mark. The third mark of a revived heart. And it's longing and hope. For God's presence. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet, driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Now, why the emphasis on the temple? Well, because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the temple was the place of God's presence. Now, yes, God is omnipresent, but in covenant with Israel, he promised to concentrate his presence in the temple at Jerusalem. And there at the temple, Israel is reminded that God's presence is gracious to forgive. That's the whole point of the sacrificial system, that through the shedding of blood, God forgives sin. And knowing this, Jonah longed to go to the temple where he could once again experience not the judging presence of God, but the forgiving presence of God. In the gloom and doom of the fish, Jonah began to see light hope. He began to see that that possibly this wasn't the final curtain on his life. And that even if he did die in the fish, Jonah actually believed that he'd come to the temple once again. Which means in the fish, Jonah wasn't only longing to journey to the heavenly, earthly Jerusalem, he was longing to journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. Because his God is merciful and gracious, Jonah was confident that he'd make it there. His sin had brought him to the very bottom. 
Yet, in God's grace, verse 6, God brought his life up from the pit. Do you long to dwell in God's presence? His presence that's no longer concentrated at a temple in Jerusalem, but that's concentrated in the temple of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the place that proves that the holy God is the forgiving God. And he proves this through his once-for-all sacrifice that's sufficient to cover and cleanse all of our sins. You may be in the pit this morning, whatever that pit may be for you, but even in the pit, especially in the pit, look to Christ. See his forgiving love. See his longing for you that in turn you might long to live in his good and gracious and loving presence, which is the very presence of God. Well, there's a fourth mark of a revived heart, and it's growing in compassion for others. Up to this point in the story, what's Jonah thought of others? Especially pagans, non-Jews. He despised them. He saw them as outside the realm of God's salvation. For in Jonah's mind, God's salvation was only for the Jews. But now in seeing his own sin and in receiving God's undeserved grace, Jonah's cold heart began to warm with compassion for others. And this comes out in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah, who'd formerly despised idolaters, now realized in the fish that he was an idolater. That in his sin, he, a Jew, had forsaken God's steadfast love. He knew he was as guilty as the rest of humanity. But he also knew that even when he's faithless, God remains faithful. Faithful to show steadfast love and undeserved mercy to those who are wayward and yet turn to him. God showed his compassion to Jonah. And as that divine compassion began to grip his heart, Jonah's heart slowly began to grow in compassion for others. Now, not perfectly, of course. Jonah is a slow learner, as are we all. And he'll have to learn this lesson again and again, as we'll see in chapter 4. Yet in the fish... He did begin to long in compassion that all Jew and Gentile would come to know what he declares in verse 9, that salvation belongs to, salvation comes only from the Lord. My friends, how do we grow in compassion for others? Especially for those that we deem hard to love. Well, by knowing and being reminded again and again that God in Christ has shown us undeserved compassion. We once were God's enemies, but now in God's compassion, we're God's friends. Even more, we're His children, not because of anything we've done, but because of what He's done on our behalf. Our entire life as Christians is rooted in God's undeserved compassion. And when this compassion is received and rested in, it's in turn to begin to be reflected. Reflected in our words. Reflected in our posts and in our tweets. 
reflected in our actions toward others, even our enemies. God has pursued you. God is patient toward you. God has forgiven you in his compassion. So how dare we despise his compassion by refusing to show compassion to others? Well, there's one final remark of a revived heart. It's this, a renewed calling. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And it seems that in saying this, that Jonah is being brought back to his original call to be a prophet. When in response to God's call, he vowed to be faithful to God. Jonah's here recalling the day when he said to God, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And now in light of his watery ordeal and fishy situation, he found himself renewed and renewing his former vow. Possibly, possibly this was the first time he took his original vow seriously. Maybe he said it. Maybe he felt it was his duty to say it, but it hadn't really pierced his heart. But now it has. It's beginning to really pierce his heart and fill his heart. And what that shows us, again, is that this horrible experience that Jonah endured was actually good because it brought Jonah back. It brought him back to God and it brought him back to God's call on his life. And my friends, what an encouragement to us that our God is always at work, even amidst our failure, to make us into the kind of people who find Him to be our all in all, so that in turn we might commit our all to Him gratefully, joyfully, and obediently. Jonah went down in his sin, down under the judgment of God. Yet by God's grace, Jonah was revived. He tasted the horror of death, but by God's mercy, he also tasted the joy of resurrection, a a resurrection that was confirmed in his prayer, and it was also confirmed in the fish puking him out on the shore. No wonder Jesus spoke of Jonah as a great sign, a great sign of what he himself accomplished for our salvation. For when we gaze upon the crucified and risen Jesus, we behold the true and greater Jonah, the one who was driven away from his father's presence, not because of his disobedience, but because of our disobedience. On the cross, Jesus experienced the hell of God's judgment for our sins. In death, he was entombed in the heart of the earth, But then after three days and three nights at God's command, death spit him out. Because the reality is death couldn't stomach the righteous and holy Son of God. When death tasted his dead flesh, death itself tasted its own demise. And that was confirmed in his resurrection. In descending into death for our sins, Jesus has overcome sin and death. And as such, he's the very embodiment of God's grace and mercy, of God's steadfast love. He's the living declaration that salvation indeed belongs to to the Lord. Christ is the fulfillment of the sign of Jonah. And therefore, with Christ before us, let us stop our running. 
Let us stop our running away from God's presence. Let us stop our running from the difficult yet life-giving call to lift high the cross and not lift high ourselves. Let us stop running from God's command to show sacrificial love to others, to all. Let us stop our running and instead return to him in faith and repentance, knowing that in Christ, sin and death are never the final curtain on our lives. Knowing him, the curtain has risen again to show us not a great fish, but a great Savior whose steadfast love is indeed stronger than death. Let us fix our eyes upon him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story, this prayer. By your grace, we acknowledge that we see ourselves in Jonah. None of us have been swallowed up by a great fish, but we have often been swallowed up by our own sin. And yet you and your grace are faithful to meet us even in that place to revive us. May these marks be evident in our life to the praise of your name. Amen.